This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. From our newsroom in London, I'm Rochelle Travers, and this is The Standard. To mark the UN's International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation, the Evening Standard's Alexandra Jones has met with campaigner and columnist Nimco Ali. We're running this interview in full on this special edition of the podcast, and you can find video clips on our website and social media platforms. This conversation contains powerful descriptions of the use and consequences of FGM, of which Nimco is a survivor. She's the co-founder and CEO of The Five Foundation, a global partnership to end the practice. Today's International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation, which is a kind of UN initiative. One of the main goals is to end FGM by 2030 globally. I just wondered what your thoughts on that were. Um, that's a tangible reality. I know it sounds like it's so close, but at the same time, the issue is so vast. But ultimately, I think if we do things differently, that we can end FGM by 2030. And ultimately, ending it doesn't mean necessarily that we um, forget all the women who've like, you know, survived FGM, like myself, so that's 200 million women globally. Mm-hmm. It means the fact that the next generation is prevented from having FGM. And the reality is, and the way that I kind of look at it is, that there are about 70 million girls that are about to be born between now and 2030 who are at risk of FGM. Most of those girls are going to be born to adolescent young women who are forced into marriage, who don't have access to economic opportunities. If we support those young women, especially on the, on the continent of Africa, then not only do we allow them to have children when they want to have them, but then they raise those children the way they want to raise them. And the ultimate thing about that is about ending FGM. So they wouldn't cut their daughters. So ultimately, it is a tangible reality, but we have to invest in African women. And that's kind of been my passion in order to achieve that. And it's been your passion for quite a few years. Yeah, at what point did you kind of personally decide to get involved um, in the campaign or to even create the campaign in the UK against FGM? Yeah, so basically for me, it was kind of like, I was, I'm the only person that kind of has lived here in, in so, you know, I've lived in the UK without FGM and I've lived in the UK as an FGM survivor. So for me, I had that kind of like duality in the whole kind of conversation. So I I kind of had this conversation throughout my um, throughout my life and I went through every single sphere of public sector. So I went through education as a girl with FGM and tried to talk to my teachers. I went through the um, the NHS, I was an employee, I was all those things that I could be, but ultimately it was something that was like, you know, I was consistently othered. It was, I think it was the birth of my niece who's now turned 13 that kind of thought, 
you know what? I just don't want her to be safe from FGM because I'm going to protect her from FGM. I wanted her to be safe from FGM in a kind of holistic way where she was protected by the law of this country. And that is all I wanted to do was to be able to make my niece and other girls like her safe from FGM um, in the UK, which I think we've done um, to a certain extent. What was the situation before then and the policy situation and kind of what did people, did people even understand what you were talking about when you said... FGM. Yeah, so at the beginning they did, and they, it, 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 um, you had to kind of say female genital mutilation. So you had to always consistently say what it was and explain. And you had to like you know spend a lot of time explaining it as a form of child abuse and a form of violence against women and girls. But when I was growing up, ironically, FGM has been illegal since 1985. Mm -hmm. So it's been illegal to carry FGM in this country but it hasn't been illegal to take girls out of the country. So ter um, extraterritorial cutting was was actually just legal and then girls would commit back in. And that was what girls like me and, and most of my friends in Cardiff were, we were taken out of the country and had FGM. But then when, um, like, you know, in the, like, you know, early um, to late 90s, there were still girls being cut in the UK. But there was a lot of, there was, there was a lot of cultural relativism in the sense of the fact that, well, these people don't know any better. And I, and, I re and, I, and I remember, like, people who were charged in terms of being able to look after me, so whether they were, like, police officers, teachers, like, health, um, health workers, consistently always other and saying well do you know what it's a horrible thing but it's your culture mm. and I and that kind of made me a second-class citizen in, in in her country which I thought was my own and which I felt really um, like you know happy to be in and to and I was like you know um like you know assimilating in so the whole point was the fact that I was to be protected from everything but that so I found that really uncomfortable and that was something kind of that marred my um growing up so when I grew up it wasn't about um, when I when I when I ended up becoming an adult and being able to have the privileges and and, and and the abilities to work in the public sector, it wasn't about articulating what FGM was to people. It was to basically actually saying that you know what FGM is, but I need you to care about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the kind of um, emphasis on the campaign that I did. It wasn't about explaining the, the types of FGM and everything else. It's like it's it's a physical act of harm that's happening to children we need to be able to prevent it. And it was really hard to try to kind of um, convince a lot of people at the beginning because I think they'd kind of seen themselves again in this cultural relative like, you know, space of thinking, well, am I being racist in, in questioning FGM? But the irony is that in ignoring FGM that you actually being racist and making young British girls feel like they weren't British at all. So you've advocated all along for quite a child-centred approach to FGM and did you ever face any backlash because of that? Yeah, 100%. It's like, um, I, for me, it was about the child because ultimately a lot of the um, women like, who were survivors like myself, then it was the next stage about actually um, advocating for emotional and like, you know, health support for them in that whole kind of in that whole kind of thing. But ultimately it was about identifying the child and protecting the child because children don't choose to be born into a cultural identity, but children are born into this country to be able to be protected like every other child was. So we had this kind of separation and when it came to FGM, it was like, well, we'll find, we'll vaccinate you, we'll educate you, but we won't protect you when it comes to issues that we think are too cultural. And I thought that was a little bit problematic because the whole point is that there is no difference between Nimco and Claire that were both in this, like, you know, you, you wouldn't want that to happen to a girl from a, um, from a Caucasian community. So why are we allowing it to happen to um, a girl from an African um, background? And I think being able to be confident to have that conversation, because I'd sat with it for almost 20 years before I articulated um, that I was a survivor of FGM, made it a lot easier. I wasn't, 
I wasn't attacking people. I was just trying to actually make the logical com conversation of what is this cultural um, um, kind of difference in 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 um, in their heads. Which ironically, I think those that are perpetrating FGM really created that. Um, I get this thing at the same time when people still want to be able to do awareness raising about FGM in the UK, and I was like. It's really interesting that I can know that people or communities that are impacted by, by, um, by FGM are able to do the menial tasks of assimilating into this country, but yet you're telling me that they don't understand FGM is wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we have to be able to question ourselves in a way that we look at the perpetrators and we forget about focusing on the victim. And what about kind of reactions from within your family or within kind of your home situation when you first started to speak about it? Yeah, it was it was it was quite horrific. It's um, and and I, and and I was just saying that the first ever interview that I did with my face and my name to it was in the Evening Standard, and this was just like like you know eleven years ago. And I remember like you know thinking, well, this is not going to go far because it's like you know it's a London newspaper. <laughs> it's like you know, I just want to have this conversation to Londoners. Um, but ultimately, it's a global city and it's a global newspaper so I um, the, 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 the pushback I got was really really horrific but I kind of stood I stood my ground because ultimately I knew I was doing something right and there was this idea the fact that I should be ashamed about the experiences that I had as a survivor of FGM as opposed to the, the, um, the people who were pro or perpetrating it should be embarrassed so yeah it was it was a really horrific like at least four or five years where I was massively alienated from my own ethnic community I was um, like, you know, I was alienated from members of my family, but I kind of, st I stood my ground because I knew I was on the right side of history. And I was also privileged enough to be able to say, well, if people don't change their minds, that I can kind of survive without them. And ultimately, I had at one point reconcile myself to, to be in an exile, but it's like, you know, it's changed since then. Talk me through, after that initial kind of interview, like, how did it go from that to kind of a formal, a more formal kind of campaign? And I think it was just because I was very dogmatic about it, because I just thought, now that now that I've done it, um, I'm actually going to go and, like, you know, just push this to the car, like, you know, to the, um, to the forefront and really get those things. So, first of all, I wanted FGM to be um, recognised as, um, um, as a form of child abuse. Mm. I wanted FGM to be, um, like acknowledged as a form of violence against women and girls because this is like the fact that it was a gender specific kind of issue. I wanted there to be health um, like you know clinics opened up because again what, what, what we did with in, in, in terms of the NHS and also so, um, and social services and, and ed education is that we put it into this complete different box. And we want, I want, like, you know, F, the, the complications that come from FGM are vast, but ultimately you don't have to be an, ex, like, an extreme expert. Every single gynecologist and health visitor could be trained in order to deal with the complications of um, FGM. But because we kind of like put it in this, again, into these little tiny issues was the fact that women were having to travel from Cardiff to London in order to get support. So what happened was that the NHS ended up in um, England and Wales putting together health clinics for everyone. And then there was a target for that in the sense that they were, they were funded for four years at the time. And somebody was like, yeah, but we need these to be funded for like, you know, for a long term. And I was like, but the whole point is we're aiming to end FGM. So I was very, very much focused on seeing to, to make sure that if I was in every stage of life again, so as a child, so when I was seven and I came back to the UK, 
I was very articulate and open about my FGM. I told my teacher, but I completely kind of like shocked her, I think. Um, so again, it was about giving the teachers the training enough to be able to deal with that, to be able to say, so, so if a child comes in and says, miss, this, this has happened to me, and this is their, their kind of safe space, how do you take that forward? So for me, coming from a policy background, it was always about the legislative change. But then what was really exciting was that in 2013, the UK government said that they were going to start doing work on the international campaign around FGM. And again, to be really be able to ensure that we are able to use our global position in order to be able to end FGM globally. So it was a, it was because of the fact that I, had, I thought I had nothing to lose because I, I, I did that first interview. I'd got the death threats. I got the... Um, I, I got the kind of like, you know, the emotional punch in the gut that I was expecting. Um, and then I thought, you know what, I've done it. I, like, you know, they want to be able to break me. They, 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 they want me to be scared and not to talk about it again. But I'm going to show them and I'm going to make sure that, like, you know, that, that girls in this country and then hopefully globally will be safe from the act. Looking back now, what do you think were the kind of major wins from that? initial push yeah like i always say it was the, so it was the health secretary of state at the time um jeremy hunt that picked up the evening standard that called me into his office then did the fact that he was going to do data because we'd already been using um like you know random numbers for how many women were affected by fgm so to basically make fgm pathways through the nhs as a reality, in order to be able to see women who've, who, who've had FGM, not as a secondary thought of the NHS, but also part of the NHS, that was an incredible thing. I think another incredible win was the fact that um, Theresa May, when she was prime minister, so we wanted to really um, add FGM to, to the Children's Act in order to be able to make sure that children are protected and seen, because at the moment, Many of the families where FGM it could happen look like normal families from the outs, like you know, like you know, there's none of those kind of children at risk factors. So, but if you put like the um, active FGM into the Children's Act, then it makes it like a, a like a like an easier threshold mm -hmm. in order for people to be able to um, engage. So that was going to go through as a private members bill. So we thought it was going to be thrown out, but then the prime minister at the time like stood up and said, you know what, I'm going to make time in my government in order to make that happen. And it was quite incredible to say like you know the fact that I, I kind of get emotional about it because sorry, I just put myself together. It took such an incredible long time to kind of get that. Sorry, it's one of those things to finally have people recognise exactly the. Mm -hmm the yeah the severity and also the importance of it i think that's one of the things that really from being ignored as a seven-year-old to being like like almost 37 i think i was at the time to have a prime minister say no we're going to actually do this i think that's been the kind of real um twist in the last um 10 years of campaigning on this issue talk to me about how you came to set up the five foundation and yeah what kind of led to you making that focus yeah so basically so the five foundation is a global partnership so to end fgm um and for, like you know in 2013 when the uk government said oh we're going to fund um ending fgm and we're going to put all this money in it with a great because that's what was always needed was like a focus and a kind of like, you know um more more money towards the issue but then what happens is that very like you know solemn do we ever actually get that money to the women on the ground the women who need it so when that first program, like, you know, I was invested in, I thought, OK, let's do this. And then that, that didn't work out. And then it, it, got re, it got reinvested again in 2018. And I thought, OK, fine, we're going to redo it again. We're going to really now this time for focus on, like, you know, African women, the, like, you know, the women who are at the forefront. 
But yet again, it was this, there, there's a level of like sexism and racism when it comes to the international development space where the fact that we want to be able to give money, but we never are able to think that we can actually give it to black and African women. So ultimately, setting up the Five Foundation was, was to say that from this side of the world, uh, we, we've been successful, but let's actually help the women who are the forefront of it. So really getting money to, to the grassroots activism. And it's, a, it's about thinking locally, um, but like, you know, thinking locally, but acting globally. And the issue is the fact that there are, we've got new stats that are coming out today, which is like 12,000 girls um, are cut every single day. And most of those, if not every single one of those, are on the African continent. So the, the reality is that we're not going to be able to end FGM unless we invest in African women on the front line. And that is what the Five Foundation is about. It's about saying that there is enough money, that there, but the commitment is not there. And there's also not that kind of... Um, What's the word? Brave, um, like you know, being brave and being innovative from um, foundations and 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 philanthropy in order for us to be able to invest in the developing countries. The okay, so and we talked a little bit at the beginning about kind of arriving at that ending FGM by twenty thirty. What do you think still needs to be done over the kind of next six years? What are the main positive steps that? people can be taking or yeah. governments can be taking? Yeah, the first thing is like the governments can be taking is the fact that I know it's difficult for governments to be able to give directly so the UK government can actually work collectively with um, with with foundations and with philanthropy in order to be able to give to grassroots organisations. So that's what we're interested in. We're not interested in, in this like, you know, hashtag of NFGM and February the 6th being a focus on the fact that what the numbers are, but those numbers are actually all individuals that there are people. So the reality is if we want to save the next 70 million girls from this horrific act of violence we we, we we have to be able to invest in African women so that is the key thing that I really really want to be able to emphasize it's the fact that each and every one of us as taxpayers as voters like you know we need to change the way that the global south and the global north um, actually connect and the fact that the only people that are going to end FGM are going to be African women and those African women are on the continent obviously. That was Alexandra Jones interviewing Nimco Ali. The Standard Podcast is released at 4pm every day. Hit your follow button so you don't miss an episode. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.